0: To gather with you this morning as we come together to to worship God together. If you're visiting or new, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here with us this morning to worship our God together. Uh, If you are new or visiting, um, and there's anything you'd like the the church to know about you, there's a connect card in the seat in front of you. We would invite you to, to fill that out. Um, any information you want to give us, and then you can put those in the wooden boxes that are on the back wall on your way out this morning. Okay. Just a couple of announcements to bring to your attention this morning. One is that coming up on December third uh, we will have our our quarterly meeting after uh, the service and we should encourage you to be a part of that. I know sometimes quarterly meetings don't sound super exciting, but there's a lot we're talking about in that service in particular, so we'd encourage you to be a part of that meeting, especially if you're a member here, but anyone is invited. second thing to bring to your attention is that in your bulletin this morning, there's an envelope for, for gifts for our missionaries. You can see them listed on the back of your bulletin, just a way to bless um, our missionaries overseas this time of year. So if you're interested in contributing to a Christmas gift for them, you can put money in that envelope and then drop those in the wooden boxes on your way out this morning as well. Uh, again, this morning we're continuing our series in, in Galatians, and so many of you last week grabbed the, the kind of scripture journals that are on the back shelf, but if you didn't get one of those and you're interested in having a, a single volume book of Galatians to follow along in and take notes in during the series, we am going to invite you to grab one of those Those are on the, the bookshelf to your right out in the foyer, um, I'm going to invite you to grab one of those. And we are glad that you're here with us. We're glad that you're here to worship our God together. So as we continue in the time of worship, would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful now for this time that have been set aside for us to come together as your people, to come together to worship you. To pray, God, that whatever burdens have been on our heart, whatever thoughts have been distracting our mind as we came in this morning, that for this time we could set those things aside, we could fix our hearts and fix our minds on you, That we would remember all the great things you have done for us, especially all that you've done for us in Jesus. That as we remember all that you've done for us, it would move us to worship, it would move us to desire above all else to live lives as servants of Christ. That we would desire to live lives that bring you honor and glory and praise. Father, Lord, what takes place here in the next hour be fuel that motivates us to live out the calling you've given us that we go out into the world and the rest of our week. Father, we pray as well that for those who come in this morning who are hurting, or those who we know who are going through hard times, you pray that you would be at work in powerful ways to bring comfort, to bring healing where it is needed, to bring peace and endurance and perseverance where it's needed. You would give us strength to face the challenges that come with living in a fallen and broken world. And above all else, we pray that you give us eyes to see the hope that you've promised us that one day you will return and you will set all things right and there will be no more pain or suffering or sickness or death. When I tell day comes, come, Father, would you help us to live lives that seek your glory? Would you help us to worship you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis is this, relying on God has to start all over every day as if nothing has yet been done. And I think it's really easy to forget that this is a daily thing that we do to surrender to God and give things to him. So worship is a great opportunity to do that. If you guys would stand and sing with us. Of Jacob, whose love endures through generations.
0: Praise you! We thank you for all that you've done for us, coming and dying on the cross in our place for our sins to make us white as snow. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Maybe see it. If you're in 4K through second grade, if, you're, if you want to go to children's church, now's the time for you to head out. in the book, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl describes his life in, in a concentration camp during World War II. But the focus of the book is not primarily on Frankl's experiences themselves. Right? Instead, Frankl, who's a, a neurologist and a psychologist, is writing primarily about how he and, and others who survived in the camp were able to survive. We're talking about not survival from a, a physical perspective, right. but how they're able to survive the, the psychological trauma that came from living in that kind of environment. For Frank, Frankl, the, the ability to survive psychologically in a concentration camp was rooted in a theory he had developed before going to the camp called logotherapy, which he describes as this. Logotherapy like, is the primary that the primary motivational force of an individual is to find meaning in life, right? So all our motivations for living come from finding meaning in life. So Frankl argues in Man's Search for Meaning that those who are able to find, to psychologically survive the torment of life in a concentration camp, were able to survive because they found meaning even in the midst of those miserable circumstances. He goes on to expand on that a little bit, and he goes on to say that people can find meaning in three different ways. One, is through the completion of tasks. Second is by caring for others. And third, by facing suffering with dignity. And so Franco found meaning in his experiences in the concentration camp by deciding that he was going to use his suffering as an opportunity to make himself a better person. Instead of becoming apathetic and just accepting that he was doomed, he chose to embrace his suffering. According to Frankel, while a man's destiny in life is certainly affected by the circumstances in which he finds himself, he is ultimately free to choose his own path in life. Frankel said that even in the worst possible situation, man always has the freedom to choose his attitude toward life. That's Franco's argument. And I certainly don't agree with him on everything, or even many things, but he does hit on an important truth, I think. Which is this. Right? That our our desire, or we all desire, right, to have a meaning and a purpose in life. We all desire to know that we have some reason for existing, some purpose. Where I would disagree with Franco is in, where we ultimately find that meaning. Because for a Christian, right, that meaning is found not first and foremost in the completion of tasks or in caring for others or in facing suffering with dignity. But for the Christian, that meaning is found in being followers of Jesus and doing the work that he has called us to do. And I find it really interesting that, that Frankel called his theory logotherapy. Right? Because the first part of that word, the L-O-G-O, Come from the Greek word "logos," and that Greek word "logos" can be translated something like meaning or purpose. And so, logotherapy for for Franco was a type of ther- therapy that revolved around finding meaning. That's what he meant by logotherapy. But that word "logos" can also be translated something like Word, right? which is how most of our Bible translations translated in, for example, John chapter 1, when John writes, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word, the Logos is with God, and the Logos, the Word, was God. And John's talking about Jesus, right? John calls Jesus the Logos. So there's something deeply appropriate about Frankel naming his system Logotherapy. In fact, it's even more appropriate than Frankl himself realized. Because he's right that we all do deeply desire meaning and purpose. But while Frankl didn't realize that the way we we find our ultimate meaning and purpose is through the Logos, through Jesus. Our meaning comes only from the Word who was God and the Word who was with God. Our meaning comes through Jesus Christ, the Lagos. And we see that in our passage this morning. We're in Galatians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 11 through through 24 this morning. What we see in this passage is that we have meaning, we have purpose, because we are called by God's marvelous grace to be servants of Christ by proclaiming the good news about Jesus. We're going to jump into this passage in just a moment, but if you have your both and you're following along there, it'll start in verse 10. I'm going to start reading in verse 11. We'll come back to verse 10 in a little bit. If you're using one of the Galatians Scripture journals, it's on page 2. This passage is really just kind of Paul's story. Paul telling you this story of all that happened to him, how he came to follow Christ, and how he came to understand what his meaning in life was. This is what Paul writes starting in Galatians. Chapter 1, verse 11. Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on any mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews and my zeal for the tradition of my ancestors. But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by His marvelous grace. Then it pleased Him to reveal His Son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. If you're taking notes, you're highlighting your Bible, like I'll just mark off verses 15, the first half of 16, because that's like the heartbeat of this passage. I'll read it again. But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by His marvelous grace. Then it pleased Him to reveal His Son to me, so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. Paul goes on, When this happened, I did not rush to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. Then, three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. The only apostle I met at that time was James, the Lord's brother. I declare before God that what I am writing to you is not a lie. After that visit, I went north into the provinces of Syria and Sic- Sicilia. And still the churches in Christ that are in Judea didn't know me personally. All they knew was that people were saying, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. So this story, this passage, it's just a story of how Paul found his calling. Right? How Paul found his purpose. How Paul found his meaning. Or, I guess, like more precisely, how his meaning found him through Christ. Right? This is not man's search for meaning. This is not Paul's search for meaning. Right? Rather, it is meaning being bestowed upon Paul through Christ finding him. If you know anything about Paul's story, you know that Paul's story has nothing to do with what Paul did on his own self-effort. Paul's story is all about how God called Paul to himself. Paul's story is the story of of God's marvelous grace. Paul himself reminds the Galatians what he was like before he met Jesus. In verse 13 he says, You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion. How I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. That's Paul's own word. Likewise, in Philippians 3, Paul describes himself this way. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And in Acts chapter 9, Paul described this way. Luke writes, Meanwhile Saul, that was Paul's name before his conversion. Meanwhile Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. That's Paul's backstory. He's doing his best to destroy the church. He's eager to kill the Lord's followers. And yet the Paul we see writing much of the New Testament is a man utterly committed to the task of preaching the gospel, of bringing people to faith in Jesus. To the obvious question then becomes, like how did Paul go from deeply committed follower of the Jewish religion who was fiercely persecuting the church, to a follower of Christ? Who would eventually himself be killed for his faith in Jesus? How did that transformation happen? Did Paul just sit down one day and examine the evidence and because of his own intellect and his own diligence in studying, he came to the conclusion on his own that Jesus was truly God? Did Paul reason his way through his own self-effort to faith? The answer is no. In fact, it it had nothing to do with anything Paul did and everything to do with God's marvelous grace. Look again at verse 15. But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Just think about what that means for a second. It means that all that time that Paul was violently persecuting the church, God had already chosen Paul. God had already called him by his marvelous grace. God knew what he was going to do with Paul. We just sang the song, like, you know the ending before the beginning. Paul's a picture of that. Before he was born, God called him. God chose him before he was even born. And yet, Paul lived this life of trying to kill and succeeding oftentimes in killing Christians. And yet, God had a plan through all of it. Paul goes on to say in verse 16, Then it pleased him to reveal his Son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. Paul understands, right, first that, that God called him, but also that when God calls him, God gives him a purpose. His purpose was to proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. That story and act that describes Paul's persecution goes on to tell us the story of what it looked like for Paul to be, to come to Jesus through God's marvelous grace. In Acts chapter 9, verse 3, we read this. As he, that if Paul, was approaching Damascus on this mission, the mission to arrest Christians, so if Paul was approaching Damascus on his mission to arrest Christians, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him, And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So Paul gets up, and he goes into Damascus, and then we read this. Paul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. And immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? They asked. And didn't he come here to arrest them and to take them in chains to the leading priests? Paul is on his way to Damascus to, to arrest and persecute Christians. When all of a sudden, certainly not because of anything Paul had done to deserve it, God shows up and he reveals himself to Paul. And Paul, in that moment, becomes a follower of Jesus. And like almost no time later, he's preaching in the synagogue saying, Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Paul's mission, Paul's purpose in life, go from his kind of self-assigned, be the most zealous, most law-abiding Jew that I can be, to God-assigned, right? To proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. And that transformation happens quickly. Not because of anything Paul did, because God, in his marvelous grace, showed up and called Paul and revealed his son Jesus, to Paul. And in doing so, he gave him a new and better purpose. And what God did in Paul's life is what God does in the life of each and every one of us who follows Jesus. It can be really easy to, to hear a story like, like Paul's, and to think, like, wow, that's amazing I wish Paul, I wish God would work in some dramatic way like that in my own life. But while your story may not be quite as dramatic as Paul's, every single one of us who has trusted in Jesus has a story. A story of how God chose us and called us by his marvelous grace and then gave us a mission and a purpose and a meaning. But there probably wasn't a time when when you were going from town to town persecuting Christians. But for each of us, there was a time when we were trying to make our own way in the world. We were trying to find meaning and purpose through things that the world said was valuable. We were living in whatever way we thought was right in our own eyes. We were not following God. We were sinners. That's the default human condition. And because of our our self-centeredness and our pride, we had broken our relationship with God. We were under a curse. Not only that, because of our self-centeredness and pride and sin, we were utterly incapable of, through our own effort, restoring our relationship with God, or even wanting our relationship with God to be restored. The Bible says that apart from Jesus, we were dead. In our trespasses and sins and dead things don't will themselves back to life. In that state, in our separation from God, in our sin, the only hope we had was if God, in His marvelous grace, provided a way for us to be brought back to life and have the curse for sin removed from us. And that's what he did by sending Jesus to live a sinless life in our place, to die on the cross in our place, and then calling us to faith in that Son. Later in Galatians, Paul put it this way. Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. God sent Jesus to rescue us from the curse of the law. Jesus took the curse upon himself. Not because there was anything good in us that deserved it. We were dead. We were under a curse. We didn't deserve anything. But God sent Jesus because of his marvelous grace. Maybe you're here this morning and and you've never had that kind of transformative experience. Maybe you've never had that moment where God, by His marvelous grace, revealed to you your need for Jesus. Where you felt the emptiness of, of trying to live life on your own and then you placed your faith in Jesus. Where you trusted that Jesus took the curse upon Himself for your sin. But that's you. If you're here, you've never trusted Jesus. You've never had that moment of trusting that Jesus died for you. And maybe this moment right now the gift of God's grace to you, maybe this moment right now is how God is calling you to himself. Not as dramatic as Damascus Road. But maybe this moment right now is how God is choosing to reveal himself to you and invite you to follow him. If you're here and you feel the need to, to be forgiven, you feel the need to have the curse removed, you know you're a sinner who's separated from God, and you know you need to be forgiven. And would you trust Jesus? Would you place your faith in Jesus? Like That's all it takes. Or would you believe that He died for your sins? And in so doing, you would, would you receive and experience God's marvelous grace? And for those of us who are here who have had that experience, when we experience God's marvelous grace, then our purpose then comes from that marvelously gracious God. The world will give us all kinds of suggestions for what our purpose ought to be. The world will tell us that our purpose in life should be to, to acquire wealth, or that our purpose in life should be to have all kinds of fun and exciting experience or to, to have career success or to have a happy family or to, to fight for political causes. All right, the world will tell us That our, our purpose in life should be to have lots of friends and to be well-liked and to be popular. And some of those things are good things, but they should not be our ultimate purpose in life. For Paul, his purpose in life before Jesus was to be a a zealous Pharisee who kept the law and persecuted Christians. But when Jesus shows up, when Jesus calls you to himself, suddenly none of those purposes are your ultimate purpose anymore. When Jesus shows up, our our purpose is transformed from serving our own self-interest to being servants of Christ. In last week's sermon, we kind of wrapped up by looking at Galatians 1.10. But that verse also kind of served as an introduction to this passage. And Paul says there, Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. And for Paul, being Christ's servant was the thing. So many of the purposes that the world tempts us to chase after all boil down to our own desire to please people. But for Paul, the minute Christ showed up and called Paul to himself, his goal stopped being about pleasing others and became all about serving Christ, about being Christ's servant. All his pharisaical obedience and zeal had been all about pleasing people and earning the approval of others. But when Paul experienced God's marvelous grace, it perfectly became all about being a servant of Christ. I think that should be true for, for each and every one of us. If we have been called by God's marvelous grace to faith in Christ, that our purpose in life is to be a servant of Christ. Many of you are likely familiar with the story of, of Chuck Colson. Colson gained notoriety, the, the political operative in, in the Nixon administration. He was known as Nixon's hatchet man, because of his willingness to do just about anything to get anything, to get done what Nixon wanted done. Colson himself said, "I was valuable to the President." Because I was willing to be ruthless in getting things done. One writer called him the evil genius of an evil administration. Colson played a key role in the, in the Watergate scandal, and eventually he'd be sentenced to seven months in prison for that role. But as he was facing arrest, Colson went and visited his friend Tom Phillips, and this is how Colson describes what happened next. He says, I visited Tom Phillips, president of Raytheon Corporation, outside his home in Boston. Or outside of at his home outside of Boston. I'd represented Raytheon before going to the White House and I was about to start again. But I visited for another reason as well. I knew Tom had become a Christian, and he seemed so different. I wanted to ask him what had happened. That night he read to me from Mere Christianity by C. S. Lewis. Particularly, a chapter about the great sin that is pride. A proud man is always walking through life looking down on other people and other things, said Lewis. As a result, he cannot see something above himself, immeasurably superior God. Tom that night told me about encountering Christ in his own life. He didn't realize it, but, in, but I was in the depths of deep despair over Watergate watching the president I had helped for four years flounder in office. I'd also heard that I might be the target of the investigation as well. In short, my world was collapsing. That night, as Tom was telling me about Jesus, I listened attentively, but didn't let on my own need. When he offered to pray, I thanked him but said no. I'd see him sometime after I read C.S. Lewis's book. But when I got in the car that night, I couldn 't drive it out of the driveway. ex-marine captain, white House tough guy that I was. I was crying too hard, calling out to God. I didn 't know what to say. I just knew I needed Jesus. And he came into my life. And from that moment on, Colson 's meaning and purpose in life was transformed. As I said, he would spend seven months in prison and during his time in prison. He would see the need for prison reform and outreach to prisoners and so he had launched prison fellowship, which would grow into the nation's largest outreach to prisoners, ex-prisoners, and their families. And through prison fellowship, countless prisoners would be led to faith in Jesus. Because of his encounter with Jesus and God's marvelous grace, Colson went from being a servant of Nixon, a servant of political power, To a servant of Christ. And again, your story may not be as dramatic as Colson's. But the arc is the same. When you follow Jesus, your purpose becomes being a servant of Christ. That's who you become, that's where your meaning resides, and being a servant of Christ. And the question then becomes like, what does it look like practically, day to day, to be that kind of servant, to be a servant of Christ? the answer to that question will, will look a little different for everyone. Based on the skills and the gifts that God has given you, based on the life stage that you're in, like what it looks like to live out your status as a servant of Christ will look different day to day. But at the core of what it means to be a servant of Christ, that it means to proclaim the good news of what Jesus has done, when God calls us to himself through Christ. He called us to be people who proclaim the good news. Right? People who proclaim the gospel. Who tell others about Jesus. If there are no exceptions. We've all been given that purpose. And again, like the actual like, way that looks will be different for each person. But we are all called to proclaim the good news. Look again at verse 16. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me. So why did God reveal his son to Paul? Only for Paul's benefit? No. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. God revealed Jesus to Paul so that he would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. You may read that, and you may say, well, yeah, that's great. That's Paul's purpose, but it doesn't have to be mine. And again, it's true that it'll like, look different for you than it did for Paul. Like, you're probably not going to go from town to town throughout the Middle East preaching the gospel. Right? You might not be called to go overseas as a missionary, but the Bible is clear that we are all called to have a role in proclaiming the good news and advancing the kingdom of God. There's a lot of places we can look in the Bible to see this, but let me just point to one. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's addressing the church in Corinth, and he, he says this. That, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ hath become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all this is a gift from God. Who brought us back to himself through Christ. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And then Paul says, And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. Who is the us in that sentence? It's not just Paul. It's not just a certain elite group of evangelists. It's everyone who belongs to Christ. Paul continues to use the word us and we throughout the next part of this passage, and it's talking about all Christians. He says, For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we, all Christians, are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeals through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, Come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we can be made right with God through Christ. We, like all followers of Jesus, are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, Come back to God. We've all been given the purpose as servants of Christ to invite and to plead with people to come back to God. We're all called to proclaim the good news, to preach the gospel. The question then is, is how? What does it look like for me to to proclaim the good news through my life? I think often when we think of People proclaiming the good news or preaching the gospel. We, we have the caricature in our, in our heads of maybe someone standing on a street corner or standing in a park just shouting at people to repent of their sins. And we think, like, I don't really want to do that. I don't want to be like that. Like, so I guess I'm not called to be an evangelist. I'm not called to be one of Christ's ambassadors. But just because you aren't called to that kind of evangelism, doesn't mean you aren't called to proclaim the good news. In fact, I would argue that there are far more effective ways of talking to people about Jesus. And what Paul does in this passage we just read this morning is instructive. What does Paul do? He, He simply tells his story. He tells the story of how God's marvelous grace called him, how God revealed Jesus to him, how he was changed by his encounter with Jesus. We all have a story like that. If you follow Jesus, it's because God chose you before you were born and called you by his marvelous grace. You have a story of what you were like before you followed Jesus. Maybe it wasn't persecuting Christians, but it was rebellion against God. You have a story of how God revealed Jesus to you. Maybe it wasn't that bright light on the road to Damascus, but it was some way that God showed up and revealed Jesus to you. And you have a story of how your life was changed and has changed since you met Jesus. Maybe it's not going from town to town like Paul was, but God has worked in you to change you after you encountered Jesus. The details of your story will be different than Paul's. But it has the same part. Before Jesus, how you met Jesus, after Jesus. And being willing to share that story is a, a powerful way of proclaiming the good news. Your story is a story about how the good news came to you. So when you tell your story, you proclaim the gospel. You proclaim the good news by, just by telling your story. It doesn't have to be on a street corner somewhere. The most effective place to share that story is often around the dinner table with family. Or at a coffee shop with a friend, or over lunch with a coworker. And God has brought people who don't know Jesus into your life. We have this opportunity to build friendships, build relationships with them, and then share our story when the opportunity is there to talk about how God has worked in our lives. It doesn't have to be every time you see them. You don't have to share your whole story all at once. But through continued, ongoing interactions that are fueled by deep friendship, you have the freedom and the opportunity to share the story of what God has done in your life, and in doing that, you proclaim the good news. By talking to your non-Christian friends and neighbors and family members and and co-workers. You're living out the purpose that God has given you. Living out the, the meaning that God has placed in your life when He called you to Himself in Jesus. You've been the recipient of marvelous grace. You have beyond measure, things that you do not deserve, good things you do not deserve. And you have the opportunity to share those and talk to others about those and invite them to follow Jesus as well and be reconciled to God. That's the meaning, that's the purpose that God has given us. So as recipients of, of God's marvelous grace, as servants of Christ, would we go and would we live out that purpose? Let's pray, Father. We are so quick to forget how we deserve nothing, how we are sinners, how we have rebelled against you. We're quick to forget how helpless we were to restore our relationship with you. We're prone to think that it's through our own good deeds, through our own effort that we can be right with you, but we remember now that It is all because of your marvelous grace that there was nothing we could have done, nothing we would have done if we had a chance to earn your favor. But because of your grace, you sent Jesus to live the sinless life that we could not live, to die on the cross in our place to remove the curse of sin from us. You made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we could receive His righteousness. Father, would we, like Paul, never stop seeing Your grace as marvelous? Would we never forget that we are servants of Christ first above all else? That seeking to live the life you have called us to live is more important than living a life that pleases people. Would we stand in awe of all that you've done for us in Christ? And then would we go to our neighbors, to our family, to our co-workers, to our friends who don't know Jesus. And would we proclaim all that you've done for us? Would we be faithful ambassadors? Would we urge people to be made right with you through Christ? Would we tell the story of all that you've done for us? and in so doing invite people into the same experience. Father, thank you for your marvelous grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you remove the curve from us through Jesus, that we can look forward to eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, in perfect fellowship with you. Father, thank you and help us to be faithful servants of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> if you are interested in talking more about that passage or the sermon, we'll meet back up here at 1045 and have a discussion about the passage and a little more about the sermon, you're welcome to join it for that. Sunday school for children will start downstairs at ten thirty. We can invite you to be a part of that as well. But as you go from here, would you go in awe, marveling at God's marvelous grace? You are dismissed.